Hello, and welcome to Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. The show today is presented to you by Gaslowitz Frankel, a law firm dedicated to resolving disputes involving your wealth, whether it be through your will, your trust, your business, or your investments. For news, pictures, and tips, go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com or follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute. Our show's hashtag is Wealth Matters. Your hosts today are Craig Frankel and Adam Gaslowitz, and we're talking today about the ABCs of asset protection. As you may know, our law firm is participating in charitable giving in celebration of our 25th anniversary. So before we start the show, we want to thank our employees for giving to some wonderful charities so far this year, including Families First, Street Smart Youth Project Incorporated, and Hillside Hospital. Follow us on Facebook at Estate Dispute or on our website at gaswitchfrankel.com for updates. Now it's time to introduce our guests. Uh, we're pleased to have with us today Tony Turner, an attorney at Cohen Pollock, Merlin and & Small, and Caitlin Dennis, Vice President of NFP Private Client Group. And uh, before we start, can I uh, just get each of you to uh, tell our audience uh, about your companies? Caitlin, how about you? Okay, um, Caitlin Dennis, NFP Private Client Group. We do personal insurance for high net worth. So anything that a client can personally own, home, auto, boats, planes, liability umbrellas, anything like that, we handle for clients. So any, anything but real estate? Anything but a commercial exposure. We can introduce you and direct you in the right way, but just personal lines. Right. And Tony? Um, I'm an attorney at Cohen Pollock, Merlin & Small. My practice is primarily advising high net worth clients about asset protection and estate planning. All right. Well, then, with that, let's start with the first question, which is basically, what is asset protection? You know, I think that's there's a lot of answers to that question. Um, people talk about asset protection when they're thinking about life insurance and protecting their family or disability insurance to protect their income. But I think today what we're referring to is protection from creditors, um, keeping your assets from being attached by a creditor. Tell us what a creditor is, because creditors to me is, you know, Macy's. But there's not necessarily, they're beyond creditors. They're claimants and other things that kind of define what a, a creditor is. Sure. Um, it depends on your perspective. Um, a lot of people have creditors they don't realize. If you get in a car accident out in the parking lot today, you're going to have a creditor. That'll be someone who gets a lawsuit and claim against you. If uh, you have an accident at your home, you could have a creditor. If you're a business owner, that's probably the number one source of creditors, whether you operate a restaurant and somebody gets sick eating your food, or more likely, you know, you, as uh, Adam pointed out, you own commercial real estate. You rent out your beach house. If you have a tenant, that can potentially become a creditor. Your spouse can become your creditor. That's what divorce is all about. And as you know, there's fiduciary liability. If you're a trustee or an executor or an agent under somebody's power of attorney, if you do something wrong or accused of doing something wrong, you may have a creditor. And so what we're really talking about is potential creditors. For us, when we talk about fiduciaries, they've already come to us and they didn't do good asset protection. That's why they're with Gaswitch Frankel when they have the dispute. So that you mentioned that you're talking about high net, with it, high net worth individuals. You both use that in the description of what you do. Is asset protection for everybody and not just high net worth? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Definitely people who have a higher net worth have more exposures for people coming after them. The cars, if they do own a business, they have more to lose. But I mean, everybody has to, you know, protect their net worth and their assets and let it grow. Tell us what happens if you don't have asset protection and a potential creditor like a business 
claim comes up that you're not protected against, what happens? Well, uh, you know, at the time that you have a lawsuit, you're defending yourself. At the end of the lawsuit, if you lose, they have a judgment against you for some amount, typically. Then the collection process begins. The creditor who has the judgment um, tries to attack your assets, take your home away, put liens on your bank account, garnish your wages. The typical way to lose your assets is through collection of a judgment. So do, do clients typically come to you before they have an asset problem, a creditor problem, or well, how does it generally work? <laughs> it's always better <laughs> if they come before they have a creditor problem. Yeah, that the planning part of asset protection is anticipating these things. Sometimes you're, let's say you're a doctor, um, you anticipate that at some point during your career there may be a malpractice claim against you, so you want to plan in advance of that. Even if it's invalid, because statistically every single doctor will have at least one or two claims filed. Tell us why it's important. You, you smiled and giggled, and you said, you know, it's better to do it beforehand. The truth is, if you wait until there's a claim, there's a huge problem, isn't there? Yeah. Um, yeah, there was a giggle there. Um, the issue is fraud. If you wait until you have a claim against you um, and you try to transfer your assets, protect your assets and some of the structures that we've talked about uh, later today, um, you will be accused of fraud. A, a, the technical term is fraudulent conveyance. What that means is the creditor has a right to go to the judge and say, I cannot reach the assets because the debtor has moved them out of my reach, and I'm asking you, the judge, to void that transfer, to let me attack those assets. And said from a litigator's point of view, it's a red flag. When I see somebody transferring assets, particularly a fiduciary or somebody in a representative capacity, not only does it help with collection, I will help infect the underlying claim and point out that this is just another example of their dishonesty. And in the inverse, when I'm defending somebody who's alleged to have done something like that, I warn them, this is going to hurt you. Don't do it. So let's talk about how we don't have to worry about those things. So what are some of the ways that a high net worth or a low net worth person can protect themselves from potential creditors? I mean, definitely having the proper insurance in place, homeowner's insurance, auto insurance. And I think everybody should have, you know, the personal liability umbrella. It protects your net worth, everything you've worked for your whole life, whether it's a couple hundred thousand or, you know, tens of millions of dollars. So it's having the review. You know, you don't know what you don't know. And sometimes it's a friend or a business colleague has a claim. You hear about it. But everybody can benefit from having a review. And in the scheme of things, liability insurance is not as expensive as a claim could be. When you say having a review, what do you mean? Sit down with somebody who's educated. Have your homeowner's insurance reviewed. You might be underinsured. You might not carry enough liability insurance to adequately protect you and your exposures. Same thing with an auto policy. I mean, you can get into an accident with a doctor. It's not a bad claim, but he might not be able to work anymore. That long term, that can completely destroy your bank account and everything you'd have. And, and umbrella policies are usually sold in conjunction with other types of policies? Yeah, it's going to sit over top of your home and auto policies, watercraft policies, um, and the, your underlying policies kind of act as a deductible. Once those limits are exhausted, the umbrella kicks in. And, and let me mention something that I, I have experienced for some of my clients. Sometimes when we talk about potential creditors, weirdly enough, they're, they're creditors of you. The uninsured motorist 
when most we have lots of accidents where the person who caused the accident is either underinsured or doesn't have enough insurance to cover the claim. Mm -hmm. Your own insurance would kick in and cover you, but if you don't have enough, you're gonna start using up your own assets. And this mm -hmm. really becomes a problem, but there's a trick about getting uninsured motorist coverage, so share that with us. Okay, so you can get uninsured motorist coverage on your auto policy, just like you do liability. And then you can also get excess uninsured motorist coverage on the umbrella policy. It's inexpensive. Normally, most companies offer a million up to five million for uninsured motorists. That's typical. And the cost is maybe $100 per million for uninsured motorists. And it allows you to, the carrier will pay out, so you don't have to front the money, and then the carrier will subrogate after the other party whose fault it was. And again, statistically, you're going to be in an accident. Everybody's gonna be in an accident. And statistically, there's a greater chance that the person who hits you, even if they're at fault, will not have coverage. Yeah, I mean, it, the carriers kind of look at what state you're in, you know, all those things kind of factor into the rates, but you don't know who you're gonna hit, who's gonna hit you, when it's gonna happen. Um, so a little tiny, you know, fender bender could turn into a monster claim dependent on the parties involved. Are there other unique coverage issues that people need to consider? Um, you know, do you have any household employees? A lot of people think if they just have a household employee, they've worked with them for 20 years, not a problem. But if those employees are, you know, W-2'd, you know, if they trip and fall or hurt themselves, they're going to want those medical bills paid. And by employees, you mean a maid, a, maid, a, a, a nanny? nanny. Um, if you have somebody that you actually employ, you W-2 them. Um, they're not like Molly maids or anything. You need a work comp policy, and a lot of people don't think about it, but it's an exposure that you have that could be detrimental if something happens. So the same kind of policy a business owner would have to have? Exactly. Okay. You know, Caitlin, I get asked this question all the time, um, literally almost every day, you know, how much coverage should I have? And I always tell clients, you should have enough coverage that the carrier has enough skin in the game that they don't want to lose it. Um, They're going to fight to keep their policy limit. So what would you tell a client in that? I'm asked this probably 10 times every single day. So there's a few things you want to look at. Your net worth. You want to see, okay, how much do I actually have to lose? It's the value of your houses, your cars, your bank account, trusts, anything like that. But you also want to look at what your exposures are. If you have youthful drivers, if you have recreational vehicles, if you have rental homes or boats. And you define youthful driver as anyone under 45 <laughs> yes. or anyone over 65? Yes, okay. exactly right. Those are just, you know, kids away at school. We've seen lawsuits, you know, recently where, you know, if your kid goes on the internet or says anything, you know, defamation claims. Those are all things that the parents are still responsible for, even though they have no control over. So you want to look at your exposures, look at your net worth, and a lot of the high-end carriers that we work with, I mean, they have the capabilities to write up to $100 million in personal liability umbrella. Granted, that's excessive, but we won't, the, nor, the normal umbrella limit we write is at least $5 million and up. Tell me a little bit about what I, I would call exclusions. When I see policies and I see people being sued for potentially bad conduct, the first place I go to is the exclusions mm -hmm. if I'm talking with a client, and oftentimes I'm kind of horrified that it's excluded out. Are there ways that we can try to expand the coverage by getting rid of some of the exclusions or thinking about it? The example I have is I've got a kid in college and he does something really dumb. My son would never do this, by the way. <laughs> um, but he goes out drinking mm -hmm. and he stupidly drives a car. 
and that might be an exclusion in some ways. How do I avoid the exclusions or think about the exclusions for my family? It's sitting down with your insurance broker, having the review, and actually breaking out. Criminal issues are never going to be covered under the personal umbrella. They're just not. Um, if it's a business type of exposure, you're running a business out of your home or something like that, that's going to be an exclusion. A lot of times, if there's exclusions, they're very typical, normal things. Um, some of them when, can be manuscripted back in. When you say typical, typical from the insurance company's perspective or from the buyer's perspective? From the buyer's perspective. It's, you know, if there's a criminal, if you're being charged with, you know, some rape or, you know, something like that that you would actually have to go to and you're being charged with on a criminal level, you know, a personal umbrella policy is not going to protect you for something like uh, that. On the criminal aspect, will it protect you in a civil suit related to those same things? It depends on the carrier. Some carriers are comfortable with it. Normally, we have to go to some excess markets, but we kind of take that on a case-by-case -case basis. Let's have the conversation. Uh, are, are there things that people think they're covered for that they're actually not covered for? Absolutely. I mean, to get off the liability on the homeowner side, a lot of people, we found out with Sandy, thought they had flood coverage just because it's a homeowner's policy, it's a normal thing. You know, that's excluded. You have to add that on. Earthquake coverage. You have to add that on. People think that they have coverage for jewelry and fine art and everything like that on their homeowner's policy. You're very limited. It's little things like that that normally people find out the hard way during a claim. There's ways we can protect you and policies we can put in place, but we need to have the conversation and know what exposures you have. But if the mailman gets bitten by your dog or a tree falls on your neighbor's car, you're You're generally. covered. Yeah. That's not a problem. Okay. Tell, we're going to talk a little bit about when, when you're not covered, what you can do and to supplement it. But I did want to ask one, I'd let you tell our listeners one more thing. One of the big deals that I see is the difference between coverage and defense costs. That if you're sued, sometimes you're sued, many times you're sued and you didn't do anything wrong. Mm -hmm. So tell me what defense costs are versus coverage costs. Because lots of my clients don't understand the difference. Okay, most umbrellas are going to include defense costs up to a certain limit dependent on the carrier, and it's not going to eat outside the limit. And the limit of the umbrella, that's what is going to pay to settle the lawsuit or the claim. So if you have a $2 million umbrella, the most that they're going to pay out for the lawsuit is $2 million. But most carriers, the cap that they're going to have for paying defense costs is $25,000. But, but saying this more simplistically, if you have a good policy, the insurance company is going to pay for your lawyer. Absolutely. Okay. And they will work with your lawyer, with the adjuster. Excellent. Can the can the can the insured choose the lawyer? They can, if they have a lawyer that is familiar with them, their family worked with them for you know years. Yes, they will team up with the carrier attorney and kind of you know work together to get this settled. They don't want to go to court and they don't want to, you know. We are listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. Today, your hosts are Adam Gasowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation law firm of Gasowitz Frankel. We're talking to Caitlin Dennis and Tony Turner, and we're discussing the topic of ABCs of asset protection. All right, so what else can be done to protect assets from insurable risks? Have we well, I think you start with considering what's protected by law. There are a number of assets that are exempt. There's a lot of misconceptions about what is protected. Um, one thing that's universally true is your retirement plans, whether they're IRAs, 401ks, pension plans, by federal law, 
are protected from creditor claims. And I want to highlight that point. When people through day-to-day economy suffer and they're starting to really have some issues of debt, they're, they're, they're contemplating bankruptcy or they're trying to figure out what to pay, this is a real red flag. Do not invade your retirement benefits. If things are going bad, you want to keep those protected as long as you can before you go bankrupt. And many people, because they're trying to figure out a way out, spend all of their retirement benefits and end up in the same place anyway. That's that's true. Um, now, are, are all retirement benefits protected? For a while, I think there was um, some issues with IRAs that I think have largely been remedied at this point. That's true. Um, for years, there was a question about, for example, whether Roth IRAs were protected in Georgia. Um, most states, in fact, I'm sure now all states, exempt IRAs from creditor claims, too. There's a combination of law in here. There's federal law, which deals with bankruptcy, and then there's regular creditor disputes, which is all governed by state law. Most of these merge together, but there are some differences. If you file bankruptcy, there may be some limits on how much, for example, your IRA is protected, whereas under state law, it's unlimited protection. But so, for example, Mitt Romney has $100 million in his Roth IRA, I seem to recall, from some campaign a couple of years back. That may not be protected in bankruptcy, although I don't think he's going bankrupt. Yeah, I think he's probably okay. <laughs> um, but there's a couple things that I think I get, you know, more often than not, people surprised by what is not protected. And it's because there's differences in every state. I always like to compare Georgia to Florida. Florida is a unique state in that almost any asset that you own is protected, in particular if you're married. The one that everybody remembers is the homestead. In Georgia, that just means you get a small reduction in your property tax. But if you get sued and lose, they can take your home away from you. There is no exemption. In Florida, by the Constitution of Florida, your home is protected from all creditors. And so a lot of famous people, athletes and so forth, own very expensive homes in Florida because it's like a bank account. Another example. And it's very sunny. And it's very sunny. And they have fresh orange juice. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, Another example, again, big misconception, is jointly held assets. People who are married and own a joint account, bank account, brokerage account, you name it. In Florida, that account is protected from all creditors of either spouse, um, what we call tenancy by the entireties. But that's not the case in Georgia. If Craig owns an account with Jana and he gets sued, at least half that account is exposed to creditors and perhaps all that account because all the money came from Craig. And if you're the IRS, they're going to take it all and then you're going to have to ask for it back politely. Politely. The The same would apply to a house that you might own with your spouse? Correct. If you individually have liability for something, your your joint owned house could be liable. Yeah, your at least your quote unquote half of the equity in that home is exposed to creditors, and perhaps all of it if you paid all the mortgage out of your own salary. And 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 think about that because the the, the default is going to be houses are purchased with marital assets, and there's going to be a a presumption that you paid half out of marital assets. It's really the exception when somebody paid more, and that's when creditors figure out a way to get there. But the default really is going to be the expectation that it's half. Finish off in Georgia. What other, you said that there are some assets that are always protected. What assets are protected in Georgia? Very little. Um, Again, we've talked about the retirement plans, IRAs, and so forth. The only other assets that are protected in Georgia are cash value of life insurance, and annuities. And those are relatively new laws. 
that haven't been tested in, in, in court very well. But, you know, if you're deciding how to invest your money and you're worried about asset protection, as you said, retirement plans are universally protected, a safe place to put your money. Life insurance and annuities are apparently more protected than, say, a brokerage account. What, 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 what about your inheritance? If you inherit something from your parents and you have creditors, are those protected? If you own the assets, they're your assets and they're exposed to creditors. Um, as we'll probably talk about later, um, if you have a child, for example, that it's exposed to you know, liability outside the norm, say your son is a physician, the parents may want to consider leaving their assets and trust for their child so that the child never owns those assets. A trust established by a third party for someone's benefit usually protects those assets from the beneficiary's creditors. So you can do estate planning to protect your assets, um, and we can talk about that if you'd like. And I'm going to do an, you know, an unabashed plug for Tony. When you do a trust for somebody that has risk, you really need a lawyer who understands how a creditor would attack or try to attach that trust. A huge problem and a growing kind of cottage industry in divorce matters where you talk about what is entitlement and what can you do. But I, we see this more and more even in just straight-up liability issues. So if you're going to use a trust to protect from known liabilities, really think about the creditor or asset protection aspects of the trust. But let's jump into this. So you've now identified the Georgia. Um, what other ways that, that, that there's very few exemptions, what things can we do to try to protect our assets? And you started with trusts. Okay. Uh, let's start with some easy ones. Um, you can convert assets that are not exempt, your brokerage account, investments, things of that nature, into an exempt asset. So you put more money in your retirement plan. Everybody can add more money to those accounts. You can and, and mention that people think that if you put you can't put money in an IRA or something else somehow that's a bad thing. But there are ways to take already existing brokerage accounts and get them into retirement accounts. So explain how that happens. Sure, sure. There are tax limits on how much you can contribute, and certainly limits on how much you can duck, deduct and contribute. But there are many types of retirement plans. So even uh, this is true for most um, self-employed people. Um, if you have a 401k plan where you can add a profit sharing plan or a pension plan. So um, particularly high net worth professionals, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, they contribute significant amounts to retirement plans because of their professional liability and the protection it offers. You know, the, the I guess the most common strategy for asset protection, if you're married, is to transfer the assets to your spouse. Uh, obviously, that's worrying about the devil you know versus the <laughs> devil you don't because we have talked about divorce as a potential claim but uh, the classic client example that I see is the surgeon who doesn't want to own anything in his or her name so they put the house in their spouse's name um, are there other 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 options besides just putting things in spouses names yes there are um, and for a lot of people uh, they are looking immediately for that they usually tell me Tony what else have you got <laughs> so what else have you got Oh, well, let's talk about some options. Um, I think probably the most common option for protecting assets is to use some sort of legal structure like a trust or a business entity to try to avoid creditor claims. Um, let's say, let's start with the trust, as Craig was talking about. Um, probably, again, a big misconception is that you can fund a trust for yourself 
to protect your assets. Um, that is not true in the state of Georgia. That's what we refer to as a self-settled trust. And Georgia law says if you create a trust for yourself, those assets are still subject to the claims of your creditors. To go back to the spouse situation, though, if you weren't unwilling to give outright to a spouse because you're worried about future potential things that may not happen, certainly using a trust structure with the spouse being the beneficiary, would that help the problem or sure. help solve it? Yeah, if you worry that uh, you know your spouse may run off with the money or remarry and give it to someone else, I prefer to say that you're not worried. But to protect, it is the easiest to protect against things that won't happen long before they happen, and therefore you do it in reverse too. But you protect so that it it doesn't become a problem in the future. I How's agree. that? I agree with that. <laughs> so yeah. Um, you can create a trust for someone else, or more importantly, someone can create a trust for you. So as I was referring to a moment ago, if my parents wanted to give me some money, I would say, one, thank you. But secondly, I'd say, I'm a lawyer. I'm exposed to professional liability. It would be better if you gave me those gifts or left me the inheritance in trust, not a self-settled trust. I didn't create the trust. Someone created it for me. And in Georgia and in most states, the law says those assets don't belong to me. And with some exceptions, my creditors cannot reach those assets. But, but they can reach it to the extent you can reach it. So if you are the trustee of that trust or if you have the right to make requests of assets or demand assets from that trust, your creditors can as well, right? Yeah. There, again, the law, as you know, is very fluid. Uh, but generally speaking, what I can get, my creditors can reach. So if my mom and dad create that trust for me, I would say make someone else the trustee and make their power to give me money fully discretionary. Hopefully it would be a friendly trustee who would give me money when I need it or want it. But if a creditor claim uh, arose, I could say, and the trustee could say to the judge, I have no obligation to give Tony any money it is fully discretionary, and Tony can't control that decision, and so you cannot allow the creditor to reach it. Okay. Now, and I, I have a very simple solution, which, you're, which, you, which you may not like, but I think it's fantastic. Your parents should give the trust to me. <laughs> yes. There'll be no creditor problems for you. And now your creditors will get them. Tony, but, let me ask you just a question playing devil's advocate. In that situation, if you got a divorce, could your wife get half of that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, those assets are not what we call marital property, meaning that they're subject to division because they were never assets that earned, were earned during the marriage. They were gifts or inheritance. But that doesn't mean, as Craig and I know, that my spouse can't sue the trust for alimony. And in fact, in Georgia, there are exceptions to the law for protections of trust for child support and alimony. So I may still yet um, lose some of my inherited trust assets to pay alimony or child support. Another reason to have the trust drafted right, and this is, like I said, a growth area for divorce lawyers. Could you put in, you had talked about divorce, and you've let's say we've created a trust for our spouse, didn't give it out right, and there's a subsequent divorce. Can you include in the trust provisions that change the payout terms, for example, skip from the spouse to the children or descendants if there's a divorce? Absolutely. In fact, uh, I'd probably need more professional liability insurance if I didn't put that language in there. Um, we always recommend to our clients, and it's difficult when you're 
they're still married and happily married to suggest but that. Some, but sometimes people get divorced. It's some, been known to happen. Yep, occasionally. And we like to make sure that your ex-spouse is no longer a beneficiary of the trust that you established or your parents established for you. So a form provision that is really just one of the many protections one puts in without highlighting it. Exactly. Exactly. Would the same be true with regard to uh, naming your spouse as trustee of a trust? Absolutely. Again, a typical form provision we would say is in the event I divorce, my spouse will cease to have any rights or benefits under the trust, and it'll be as if my spouse had pre-deceased me. And the same would be with, true with regard to your spouse serving as trustee of that trust. Exactly. All right. Uh, you're listening to Wealth Matters, the radio show where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. We're your hosts, Adam Gaslowitz and Craig Frankel from the fiduciary litigation firm of Gaslowitz Frankel. We're talking today with Tony Turner and Caitlin Dennis, uh, discussing the topic of asset protection. I do have a, a question for Caitlin. So you talked about creating, uh, Tony, about using limited liability corporations or other things like that to protect. You also talked about trust. My question for Caitlin is, can we use insurance as an investment? So to, to not, for, for not for reasons for liability protection, but using it as an investment to kind of put our money, would that be protected from uh, uh, creditors or potential creditors, or would we need to use a trust mechanism to do it? A trust mechanism to do that. All right, what about other uh, vehicles besides trusts? Yeah, the sort of the, the biggest area that we use for protecting assets is business structures, corporations, LLCs, limited partnerships. Um, we all sort of get that um, when you go to McDonald's and get a cup of coffee. McDonald's is a corporation. Uh, if you spill the hot coffee on you, the shareholders that own McDonald's stock don't get a judgment against them. It goes against the corporation. So any client of mine who operates any kind of business from you know a multi-zillion dollar business to a simple dog walking business i always recommend that they incorporate or use an llc to protect themselves from the claims of the um, customers of the business so the assets of the business are still subject to liability, but not the assets of the owners of the business. That's correct. And this comes up most frequently in my practice where clients who own, say, a beach house and they rent out the beach house. You can insure against that risk, and often you do, but the more rental property you own, the more likely you're going to have a tenant claim and the more likely it makes sense to own all that rental property inside an LLC or a corporation to limit your liability to the equity you have in that property, but to protect all your other assets from the tenant claim. And, and we see on TV a lot of commercials for, you know, $50 will set up your LLC for you. I do want to, want to make kind of two comments. One, partnerships are not the same thing. They're going to pass through. But where I see the problems on LLCs, even if they're single purpose, for example, owning a beach house, is that the LLC agreement doesn't really provide for the management or control and it ends up either biting somebody because of liability or biting them later when we deal with ownership or how you transfer the asset in the future. Are there things that we should be thinking about when we do the liability protections in a corporate structure that are kind of helpful to us to, to remember, to protect, not just the liability exposure? Yeah, I mean, definitely the do-it-yourself LLCs and incorporations are, um, you sort of get what you pay for. Um, they're not invalid, but there are other things to think about. I think it's important here to describe two types of risk. We were talking about what I refer to as inside risk. 
the liability that the business creates, the customer, the tenant. You're trying to protect your personal assets, your home and your bank account from the business liability. But the flip side of the coin is what I call outside risk. You get in a car accident in the parking lot and the plaintiff determines that you have wealth tied up in rental property and these other businesses and they'd like to own your business assets. How do you protect your business assets from these outside creditors? Um, that's where you really have to be careful what entity you use. For example, if you use a corporation, a corporation will not protect the corporate assets from the plaintiff in the parking lot. The plaintiff in the parking lot Particularly gets it. if it's 100% owned. Yes, exactly. So a lot of people make this mistake of incorporating, and it will work to protect you from the inside liability, but not from the outside liability. What's unique about LLCs and limited partnerships is that they will protect you from both inside and outside risk. But that's where you brought up the operating agreement. Um, one of the exceptions is if you own 100% of any entity, they, the creditors can convince a judge that that entity should be ignored or what we call piercing the corporate veil. So what you'd like to have happen is if you have an LLC or partnership to have a partner. Then the law, not to protect you, but to protect your partner, will prevent a creditor from reaching inside the corporate entity, the LLC or partnership, and taking those assets. And a simple rule to realize, I think, for any limited liability or limited partnership is that don't treat them the same. They actually are different. Maintain separate bank accounts. Don't do anything that would encourage the court to say it's a, a front, so to speak. And there are also lots of different ways to structure your corporate entities to protect assets in different ways. So, for example, if you've got a corporation that has a lot of business assets, those those business assets can be owned by a separate company and leased to the operating company. So the operating company isn't, uh, their creditors are not able to get at those assets. There are different structures like that that can help. Is that right? Yeah. And, you know, clients will get frustrated at the legal cost of establishing those but the value is exactly what you said. If you have the old adage of having all your eggs in one basket uh, is true in the legal world. If you can separate, for example, with rental properties into multiple LLCs, then you're limiting your liability um, to the individual LLCs as opposed to having them all. And to make it better for the client, can you also use other estate planning techniques where we might use to try to deal with changing the values and stuff for transfer taxes and a lot of one of the common methods is to chop up some of the ownership and voting and control would those same mechanisms help somebody protect themselves from potential liability sure um, and a classic example of this would be a divorce um, a business owner um, typically wants to keep his business in the divorce well, if his legal documents and his business structure are such that the spouse, if they got half the business, couldn't really do anything with it because there's lots of limits legally on what you can do. You can't sell it. You can't make decisions or vote to liquidate the business. Then it becomes an unattractive asset to a creditor. And so a lot of the legal documents and a lot of the effort goes into how do we make this structure as bulletproof as possible, as unattractive as possible to a creditor, and maybe worth less for do, tax purposes? Do you have to put businesses in business entities? Can you take your brokerage account, for example, and put it in an LLC? 
You know, that's a good question. Um, I recommend that people do that. Uh, I figure there's nothing to lose by owning investments in an LLC. The argument the creditor's going to make is if it's used like a checking account or an ATM machine, then it's probably not a legal entity. But if it's truly for your savings and investments, then that's as good a business as a rental business or a bricks and mortar business. So you can use the LLC structure to protect liquid investments. And you can use a holding company or holding LLC to own separate bottom line, lower level subsidiary LLCs. And that gives you another layer of protection doing the same thing. So you could have, you know, holding LLC own the interest in LLC that owns a rental, LLC that owns brokerage, and stuff like that. Does that provide extra protection? Yeah. uh, As I said before, it gets highly complex. um, And you'd think, well, this is for rich folks um, who have, you know, businesses. Well, I have a client that owns a taxi company. He has, last count, about 38 taxis. Guess how many LLCs he has? 39. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So if it's important to you to protect yourself, um, then it's important to consider these legal structures, even though they're complex. You, you mentioned earlier that um, you can't really set up self-settled trusts in Georgia. There are other states now that you can at least attempt to do that, isn't it? Sure. Is that true? Uh, yeah, in more and more states. In fact, Georgia briefly uh, almost passed legislation this, this uh, session to allow what is allowed in many neighboring states, including Tennessee and Mississippi and probably about 18 other states. Uh, the concept is in those states – if you're a resident of that state, you can create a trust for yourself as long as there's no fraud, so you can't have an existing creditor claim. Fund the assets in a trust that's what it's known as an irrevocable trust. You don't have the right to change it, and it's discretionary and has someone else serving as a trustee. If you satisfy all those requirements in those states, with some exceptions, your creditors can no longer reach those assets. And so it is a real opportunity if you live in that state to take advantage of. And and let's highlight, even if you do a self-settled trust in Georgia and have a beneficiary other than yourself, you're still going to get the asset protection. If you have a self-settled trust. You you create the trust. If you you set up a grantor trust for For somebody else. else. Yes. Yeah. But, um, you know, the law is unclear whether I can take advantage of the Tennessee asset protection law. There have been cases where courts have said, no, you don't reside there, so that's not available to you. Nevertheless, many people do these what we call asset protection trusts in Nevada or offshore uh, in another jurisdiction like the Cayman Islands, um, and they use that at least as an argument, a a veil to prevent prevent or uh, avoid creditor claims. My philosophy is asset protection is like sort of these road barriers. You just want to set up enough barriers that it's difficult for the creditor to breach the protection. You're in. And the more layers, typically the better, but it gets more expensive and more cumbersome. The more hoops, the more hoops. <laughs> um, I do want to highlight that when, we, when you do this, the area that we see the problems is you've got these creditor asset protection mechanisms but that the person who's adopted these structures doesn't understand how to use them. And so either they become burdens later on or they fight over it, um, they, they misuse it and actually create red flags for the creditor anyway. And the, and the one I highlight is you have an irrevocable trust or you have an entity and you use it as your personal piggy bank. 
that is the number one red flag I see for fiduciary issues. And people do move occasionally, so the rules that apply to them when they set up a trust may change if they move to a different jurisdiction? Sure. Or uh, you may, you know, I, I can't tell you how many clients in the meltdown we had in 2008 headed for Florida. And there are rules about how long you have to be there, but clearly you can move to a more friendly uh, state for debtors and more uh, adverse to creditors. Oh, and, and one last thing uh, before we move on. Um, with regard to revocable trust, people seem to have a misperception about what the differences between revocable and irrevocable are, even though it seems to be buried in the title. Um, revocable trusts are not going to provide any protection at all to anybody. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Okay. And just for us, define revocable and irrevocable, or irrevocable, depending upon how you pronounce it. That's true. Uh, it's just what it sounds like. A revocable trust means that the person who created it can change it, any part of it, typically amend it or revise it. An irrevocable trust, uh, unless you have a really good lawyer, means that you can't change any aspect of the trust. And we're not going to get into decanting to get around that, are we? Not today. <laughs> We're about to, to wrap it up, so let's just uh, hear from each of you um, where we can contact you. Our listeners can contact you if they have much more detailed questions or want to hire you. Okay. Um, NFP Private Client Group is the website, and email is caitlin.dennis at nfp.com. Tony? And Tony Turner. Um, the number, you can either use my phone, 770-858-1288 or my email address, which is tturner at cpmas.com. And, of course, you can go to that same website. Yep, www.cpmas.com. As we wrap up our show, I want to thank everyone for listening, both live and in our future podcast, To Wealth Matters, where we discuss the opportunities and challenges of preserving and managing wealth. For more information about Gaslowitz Frankel, please go to our website at gaslowitzfrankel.com. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Estate Dispute and use our show's hashtag Wealth Matters. Our guests today were Tony Turner and Caitlin Dennis. Please join us every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8.30 a.m. here at Wealth Matters on Business Radio X.